Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The challenge of hearing scripture has never been more difficult. Each of us is trained to hear what we want to hear. We decide what we think about God before we crack the first page. Then, when God says or does something that does not confirm or conform to the graven image in our mind, we tighten our blinders, adjust our earplugs, and fine-tune our theology to work around what is written. We excuse and defend our well-fashioned idol when we should be feeding our brothers and sisters with the bread of the gospel as instructed. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 45 to 41. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 380 of the Bible as Literature podcast. How many times, Dr. Benton, have we heard people say, yeah, that's fine, but I thought the God of the New Testament was so much nicer than the God of the Old Testament. And how many times have we had to say in Bible study and in lectures and in sermons, with all due respect, you lost me at your false premise that we're talking about two different gods. For heaven's sake, wasn't that heresy smashed very early on? There is one God in Scripture, the God of the one Scripture. This idea that the God of Scripture who smashes Jerusalem in the Old Testament and wipes out cities all throughout the Torah and the prophets. The idea that this is somehow different in the New Testament is only possible to hold up if you're not familiar with the content of the New Testament. Never mind that he sits back while they execute his son. Never mind that he tells his son, Let's let your best friend die. Let's ignore the story about Ananias dropping dead because he held back on a few pennies. I mean, there's a long list. Then there's difficult passages like the one we're about to read here in Matthew 24. Never mind everything that came before this passage in Matthew 24, and never mind what's coming next. The only way you can talk about Jesus being something akin to your Easter bunny 
is if you have no clue about the content of the text or if, as St. Paul says, you read it with blinders on. I was holding my breath, Father, when you said, I always thought, because that can go in two ways, depending if you're an idolater or having your idol smashed. Most often you hear, I always thought, so, and then you explain your idea. What that means is that your thought, your brain, your idea is the reference point, and you're basing your conclusion on what you thought. I thought X, Y, Z, so, then this truth about the universe. But the scriptural person reads the text, hears the text, and they say, I thought X, Y, Z, but Scripture actually says da 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 because that means that Scripture is your reference point, that Scripture changed your mind, that Scripture eliminated your thought, that Scripture began to chip away to destroy your idols. So I thought so, and I thought but, the difference makes all the difference because scripture is here to smash those idols. Here's what happens. We read about a slave, a thulos. I always thought slavery was bad. So I have a problem with today's text. The alternative, I always thought slavery was bad, but It seems like this slave is actually held up as an example in this text. Maybe I need to think about this more. This is the difference. I was telling you, Father, I've been having conversations with people of all different Christian backgrounds, and they'll make assumptions about Jesus. You know, someone said to me, you know, how does Jesus work through you? And I said, I don't know, because when I read Matthew 25, which we'll be getting to soon enough, I am working for Jesus. Jesus is not working through me. Whenever I help the least of these, I'm helping Jesus, according to Matthew 25. Okay, so how is Jesus working through me? It doesn't make sense. This is the problem. So you can say then, I always thought Jesus works through me, but I read Matthew 25 and I realize it's not so. I always thought it was my decision to get a vaccine, but Scripture tells me my main concern is with the weaker brother. This is the way that Scripture works. So whenever you have a thought, I always thought, be sure to follow it up with, but not so. You and I were chatting this morning, Richard, about this fake tension between fundamentalism and postmodernism, but they're really two sides of the same coin. The fundamentalist is interested in what the text is talking about, something outside of the text that they believe is real. But the postmodernist is quick to point out correctly that the very thing the fundamentalist imagines the text is talking about exists only in the fundamentalist mind, which means the fundamentalist is interested in something 
that is a creation of their own mind. It's not real. So the fundamentalist has to choose between the text and the projection of their own mind. Now the postmodernist would say, since that's the case, I choose what's inside of me. They opt for existentialism. What we're saying is that we understand that everybody inserts themselves into the equation. We're opting for a methodology that prefers a control for that problem. We know that everybody inserts themselves, but we're trying to hear what the text is saying. We're trying to make sure that we don't put ourselves into the text. We want to hear what God is saying. It is his statement. Otherwise, we're going to come to the Bible and do what everybody does at every Bible study. Well, Father Mark, I want a loving God. I really think God is loving and kind and merciful. That's great. I'm glad you want a loving and kind and merciful God, just like children want loving parents. But when you go to school and you make fun of some kid because he's overweight or because she's short or because a kid is struggling with sexuality or some other issue, or maybe a kid has a speech impediment and you come home and you say, I want a parent who's loving. What you need is a parent who's stern and who puts you in your place and disciplines you, not a teddy bear. For heaven's sake, people, we need what the text gives us for our edification. So the methodology that we advocate of putting controls in place to limit our ego and our perspective and our interpretation to keep it out of the equation as much as is humanly possible. And that's why, as you were saying last week, Dr. Benton, the process of peer review is essential because no matter what, my opinions, my emotions, my human perspective is going to get in the way of the Word of God. That's why reading it with colleagues and having them critique your reading is essential. Not only because other people bring different knowledge of languages and history, but because other people can call you out when you're not being objective. That's how you get to the best possible hearing, not of other people's perspectives, because perspectives are immaterial. You get to the best and most objective hearing of the author's statement and perspective, which is all that matters objectively. That's why I find that modern American religion is ultimately individualistic, and modern American science is ultimately communitarian. For the American religious person, I in my own reference, I thought that so. I came up with an interpretation, so that's my interpretation, and that's what my heart tells me, and you can't tell me my heart doesn't tell me otherwise. Whereas in science, you're very meticulous to say, here's where I started, here's how I came to my conclusion, here's the data that I amassed during my experiment, and here's how I ultimately came out. And then you can show that to your friends in the same field, and they say, yeah, but this doesn't make sense, and you did this badly, and this doesn't work, so I'm suspect of your conclusions. I don't know if they work. 
or they say, hmm, you did some really important work here. You came up with important conclusions. I'm going to have to go back to my work and see where my work might have been wrong. This is the difference between I think so and I think but, because I think so means you are the reference point. I think but means that you are able to be changed by people who know more, who have done better, who are smarter, who know the facts about the data at hand better than you do, which is how we want to progress as individuals. We want to be able to learn from Scripture. And if someone has a better interpretation of Scripture than we do, we better learn from them. If people understand, like you said, Father, the language, the context better than we do, we better learn from them. It's a wasted opportunity if we stick to our guns, which I think is a fantastic American metaphor. Only Americans stick to their guns. We stick to our guns. Why? So we can defend ourselves no matter who comes at us. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Once again, Matthew brings to the forefront the Roman household. And anyone who knows anything, and here I mean anyone who's hearing the New Testament for the second time through, anyone who's listened to the New Testament in Greek, I'm talking about people who would have been evangelized in the first century, now revisiting the story from soup to nuts, beginning again with Matthew, upon hearing verse 45, would think first and foremost of the economos, the Apostle Paul. Paul is the slave who was put in charge of the master's household to give food to the people at the proper time, to give them the bread of instruction. This is how we have to understand it. The whole chapter has been talking about preparedness. What is the business of the slave put in charge of the household? And it's interesting, Richard, because we've just blown up the city. We're on the move, and suddenly we're talking about a household. Obviously, the household is a metaphor for a flock because you can't pick up a Roman villa, put it on a cart, and drag it out into the wilderness. So the household is a moving household, which is a flock. It's a shepherd and his flock. But we're talking about feeding the flock. It's a Eucharistic metaphor, but the bread of the Eucharist is the bread of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, is the bread of the gospel. It's the bread that was invoked just last week on Holy Friday when we stood before the tomb of Christ and heard Paul's preaching of the small leaven in the hope that the bread of the gospel would rise to feed the people. This is what we're talking about now. This is the business of the chief slave of the household. It's significant that there's one task that the master, the Kyrios, the lord of the house, gave to this slave, and that is to give them the food. So it's the plural. It's giving to all the people in the household the food that they need. 
this was his job was to feed everyone. I think that's so astute, Father, the way that you connected that with the role of the shepherd, which we've been seeing all along here, is that there's a job which is to give. So the only reason why you, slave, have been given what you have is to make sure the house is taken care of, to make sure that everyone receives their food. So if you've been given money, it's to give the money to those in need. If you've been given a house, it's to give shelter to those in need. If you've been given clothing, it's to give clothing to those in need. That's it. The way we like to think about it is, oh, I've got an extra 20 bucks. I'll give it to the poor. Oh, I've got these pants that I've never really worn. I'll give those to the poor. The reason you were given any pants, the reason you were given $200,000 was to make sure that the household was fed. And it's not because of your high station or because of your high calling. It's because you're a slave and that's where the master of the house happened to put you. That's it. You're there and you're there to do your duty. So again, this week I had to deal with this idea that Christians have that the reason God tells us to give is because ultimately giving makes us feel good. If giving makes us feel good, either A, we forget that it's not our stuff, or B, we're not giving enough. Because giving everything that was given to us, I don't know if it's supposed to feel good, but people make the assumption that it's supposed to feel good. I don't know. If I'm going to make restitution to the Native Americans, how am I going to feel good about that? Because the house that I paid for is no longer my house. I'm giving it to the one it was taken away from, which is just the minimum. I'm making sure that those who are the most needy in my community have everything they need. Does it say that the slave, having taken as much as he felt comfortable taking, then fed the rest of the house? No. His only job was to make sure that all were fed. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Verse 47 is a hinge between Matthew 13 and Matthew 25. In Matthew 13, we have this teaching of Jesus which is very popular among nonprofits in the United States, to whom much is given, much is expected. And to that one who does something with what they've been given, more will be added. We'll hear that in the story of the talents in Matthew 25. This is what is being explained here. If I put a faithful economos, I mean, we're talking about a thulos, but the thulos in charge is the economos. That's the thulos responsible for the house rule, the house order. Economia, economy. We're talking about managing the affairs of a household, which is where the word economy comes from in modern economic theory. The idea being that you manage the affairs of a society by controlling the equitable and fair distribution of wealth the point here is that someone who's good at managing will be given more responsibility. That's exactly how it works in corporate America. Everybody knows if someone's a great supervisor, you promote them to manager. If they're a good manager, you promote them to director, and it just keeps growing. And you push them, and you give them as much as they can take. 
because if someone's capable, you take advantage of it. That is what Jesus is saying here for the sake of the household, for the sake of the gospel. To whom much is given, much is expected. And if you're faithful in something small, you'll be set over something great because there's work to do. Again, we can't hear this individualistically. Like, I get a little gift, and if I take care of it, I'll get a big gift. No, come on, stop it. Stop it! It means if you do a good job taking out the trash, I'm going to have you take out the trash for the whole block. And if you do good taking out the trash for the whole block, I'll have you do that next month, and you can clean everybody's toilet. That is what Jesus is saying in the parable of the talents. Do you understand my Arabic? Can we stop with the I'm special theology nonsense? Please? If you want to feel special, stay home and watch Netflix. If you want to do the work of the kingdom of God... Come sign up and help me pick up the trash in neighborhoods that the civil authorities don't care about. That is what we're talking about, friends. There's nothing lonelier than feeling special. Setting ourselves apart, setting ourselves over, staying with our own thoughts, and doubling down on what we always thought. This is the loneliest worst, most self-serving way of thinking. The closest proverb we have in English to the idea here is, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. You don't give it to the person who has spare time. You give it to the person who's good at it. And if you have a slave who's good at making sure everyone gets fed, then his job is to make sure that everyone gets fed on every trip, every time, all the time, that slave, it's his job to do it. Now, I find it so funny because I remember one time we were talking about slave as the image of the Christian, and people said, nah, it feels too passive. Slave just feels like it's a passive, like you don't have any will, you don't have any decision, and you don't do anything. It struck me as so strange because all that the slave is is he's emptied himself, his desire, his heart, and all these things, and only does the will of his or her master. That's just how it goes. Now, the human masters over human slaves are wicked. I don't think we should have slavery in this country. But if we're going to understand Scripture, we have to accept ourselves as slaves, because we have to submit ourselves to a duty that's dictated to us. And I know Americans, you don't like when anyone dictates to you. Americans don't like to think of themselves as slaves. Americans don't like someone else telling them what they have to do. Americans don't like a tyrannical government that makes them close their restaurant or reduce capacity so that people don't get sick and die, or that you have to wear a mask when you're around other people. Americans don't like this. It's about our rights. It's about my rights. But the slave has zero rights. Zero rights. 
the slave has a duty. The difference between the American and the slave is the American is all rights and the slave is all duty. If the American wants to be a Christian, we have to smash our idol of rights and live according to duty as the slave put over the household goods to ensure that everyone in the house is fed. Here's the sad truth. It's all fine and dandy that Americans are against slavery and don't believe in slavery. But the reality is, in order for us to demand our rights and demand our conveniences and demand everything that we want, there must and there are slaves here and abroad, period. You don't have to like that statement. You can be angry at me. You can accuse me of one of your many isms that you love to hurl at people you disagree with, but that is a fact. Just go to your local department store where you can find one of your t-shirts for $6.99 on sale and run a trace on it. In many cases, it will have passed through the hands of child labor so that you could get a discount. It's high time we wake up and be honest with ourselves. We just have to be honest with ourselves about our wonderful neoliberal values spreading freedom around the world. We're spreading something for sure. The Christian who truly submits to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the public portrayal of his shame and humiliation is choosing to become a slave so that others do not have to be enslaved. You cannot say, I am against slavery. That is empty lip service. You can only take the place of your brother or sister who is a slave. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything else is vain talk. That is why Facebook is a cesspool of bumper stickers. It's an echo chamber of self-righteous egoism. Everybody puts a badge on their avatar explaining how righteous they are and how much they care while they're sitting on their chair, staring at a screen. Wake up, friends. Arise. The Lord is coming. He's going to breathe life into those bones, and it isn't going to be pretty. Everybody gets excited on Pascha. Don't. Because when you hear the voice of the shepherd from beyond the grave, that means Matthew 25 is just around the corner, and it's not good news for everybody. Didn't you hear what's going to happen to 50% of us when the Lord comes back to make an accounting of his slaves? Who was the wicked slave and who was the righteous slave? 
But if the evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves, and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces, and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's repeating what we've heard all throughout Matthew 24. The Lord is coming. It's not going to be pretty. He's going to separate the wicked slave from the faithful slave. The faithful slave is the one who receives the bread of life, shares the bread of life, and obeys the bread of life. The wicked slave is the one who says, who cares? Yeah, we're supposed to take care of the people in Yemen. We're supposed to worry about what's happening to the people of Latin America. We're supposed to care about the homeless in our own city. We are. It's true the Lord is coming, but right now we're together, so let's just enjoy ourselves. We have time to deal with the suffering of our neighbor. The problems at the border, well, you know, yeah, it's true. It's sad what's happening to those kids, but, you know, if their parents would have followed the rules and come here legally, they wouldn't be in that situation. Anyways, we have time. Not according to Matthew 24. And it's not lost on any of us, at least it shouldn't be, that Matthew 25 is just around the corner, Dr. Benton. Jesus has been saying all along, you know that this is coming at any time. You know that the walls of Jerusalem are going to fall at any time. You know this. Just as you know when lightning strikes that lightning has just struck, you know that this is coming. So, this idea of, as you said, Father, we have time, it's an illusion those who are in need need to be taken care of immediately. The difference between the good servant and the wicked servant, o kakos dulos, is that the good servant takes care of the household in its time, immediately. At the time it's needed, he takes care of them. The wicked servant is assuming he has time. So what does he fill his time with? self-serving. He beats those he's in charge of taking care of and feeding himself and drinking that which was set aside for those he was to take care of. He takes care of himself because he's got plenty of time to take care of everyone else later on. The good servant, the wise servant, the phronimos, takes care of those he's in charge of immediately in its time. The good takes care en quero, and the wicked says, chronisi, chronisi muo kirios. My master is late. Do you do it on time, or do you wait because the master's late? The correct servant knows that he is under judgment at any moment. Slaves are clearly not passive. Neither one of these is passive, by the way. They're both active. 
But one uses the action to follow the will, not of his own heart, of his own mind, but that of his master. And the wicked does what he wants on his time. When someone gives you an instruction and you have to carry it out, it happens all the time in corporate America. If someone has an idea, great, simple idea. Why can't the team make this happen? Because an idea is a platonic construct that means nothing. It's imaginary. Make this happen. Oh, sure, we'll make this happen. But the actual doing of the thing is complicated. It takes 14 hours a day to do the thing with lots of people. It's not passive. It's hard work. It's grueling. It can be dispiriting. It's stressful, and it involves a lot of people, and there are risks, and there are decisions. It takes courage. It takes effort, and people lay it on the line to make something real out of some objective that is necessary to carry things forward. There's nothing passive. Ask someone on the battlefield if carrying out a strategic objective handed down from a general, is passive. Ask someone on the battlefield in Afghanistan if it's passive to carry out orders behind enemy lines. Are you kidding me? Is it passive because you didn't decide the battle plan? There's nothing passive about any of this, friends. Even more, let's talk about the discomfort of what happens to the wicked servant. Dichotomisi cut into pieces. When I look at the lexicons... Wait, 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 wait! I thought God was loving. Yeah, I was thinking you might bring that up, Father. You're shattering my <laughs> image of God! Oh, how the idols tumbled when Mark brought the gospel to Egypt. <laughs> it, this is, I mean, it's... Thayer's Greek lexicon even just sounds queasy. In these passages, many suppose reference to be made to that most cruel mode of punishment in use among the Hebrews and other ancient nations, by which criminals and captives were cut in two. But in the text, the words which follow and which imply that the one thus cut asunder is still surviving opposes interpretation, so that here the word is more fully translated cut up by scourging, scourge severely. So we have a debate. Does this mean the servant was actually sliced into bits or only figuratively sliced into bits through serious <laughs> whipping? This I'm is... still stuck on whether or not God loves me now. <laughs> right. Well, he's somewhere in between chopping you into bits and just whipping you into bits. So that's where we are. This is where it ends. Now, the reason why they say it's not chopped into bits is because he's put into the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So if he can still weep and gnash his teeth, then maybe he wasn't actually sliced into bits. But this is the outcome. So this is the funny thing, because the disciples asked the whole question because they were worried about Jerusalem. Well, I think there's a bigger concern than about Jerusalem. What are you doing? Do not think that there's an option of which one of these two you do. The loving God of your mind is not in Scripture, does not come from Scripture, and in fact is incompatible with Scripture. The God of Scripture is either your God or it is not. But the only way you know 
the God of Scripture is if Scripture is your reference point, not your mind or your heart. I thought, but Scripture said. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.